Hey, Rachel. Hello, Liz. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the Nourishing Liberty podcast. I'm your host, Liz Reitzig, and your co-host, Rachel Mills, today. And this is a podcast all about our food systems and how we fit into them. Rachel, thanks for being here. We have some exciting topics today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah, we're going to talk about women and food security, which is... uh, Something I think that we think about with not even, well, not even thinking about it, but it's kind of a role that women tend to take on. Absolutely. And this is something that, you know, has been true throughout history and the cultures the world over. So this is not something that's like a 1950s U.S. phenomenon. This is, this is very much a part of our, uh, our biology, really. And that doesn't mean... I don't think either of us are claiming exclusivity Mm -hmm. that women do this, but absolutely like women are a huge part of food security in their households and their communities. And, you know, we can talk about industrialization and how much harder it's gotten post-industrialization and what like the impacts on us. And, you know, just in our, our pre-conversation just now, we were talking about how much harder it is to parent without support networks. Mm -hmm. Especially uh, grandparents. It used to be that multi-generations, like that was a thing. Like you would live with your parents. Now it's like a mark of shame (laughs) in our culture. It used to be just a thing where generations would live together and, you know, the, the grandparent generation would have a role of childcare. They would take care of, you know, their grandbabies while the, you know, middle-aged and younger parents would go out and labor in the fields or wherever. There's some, many cultures where that's still the thing. And as a real estate agent, um, whenever we would sell homes to some segments of the Indian community back in uh, Raleigh, um, they would buy these huge mansions, and it's not because they were particularly wealthy. I don't know whether they were or wouldn't or weren't, but uh, several generations and even sibling groups, entire families would pool their resources and all live under one roof. And they would have a massive kitchen, you know, and kids would be raised with cousins. And, and I just thought that was just the most beautiful thing. I was like, <laughs> Mom. (laughs) 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 And, you know, like, how cool would it be if if that was more um, the norm? Um, And I I think we're we're missing something by having got away from that. Absolutely. And part of what I love and what we do in talking about food systems is that we talk about how our food system is so central to so many other systems we've set up, right? Because food is one of those basic fundamental needs. And so if you think about it, that, that term food security, it means so many different things to different population groups. And on the one hand, it means, do we have enough money to buy whatever's on the supermarket shelves? And on another hand, it means, do we know how to grow some of our own food, prepare our own food, and then come together to enjoy that food, right? And so what you're describing, it's like, yeah, it's, there's, there's so much about that that works. Yeah, 
And when you look at the breakdowns, what's not working, why do we not have food security? Well, that, that food system, the way that food system touches our family systems, right? If, if we're segmented as families, then we don't have the support networks mm-hmm. to produce and to process our own foods in our own kitchens. And so this, this concept of like more people there together, all participating in the same systems towards the same goals is quite remarkable. Yeah, and you get some economies of scale with that kind of lifestyle. And, you know, grandparents and grandkids can, you know, take care of a garden out back, a pretty large one. <laughs> you know, that that would be a great thing for grandparents and grandkids to do. Together. <clears throat> but with economies of scale lost in that way, you know, everybody's just trying to keep their head above water. Right. Yeah, and and, and there's also, like, one of the things we touched on a few times is economics and like, I'm kind of really looking forward to us really diving into that because we're both knowledgeable. We come from different perspectives, but a shared perspective of, uh, how would you describe our shared perspective? Uh, not, not conforming to the modern ideas of economics. Definitely outside the box. Outside the box. And (laughs) one of the components in there is value and that not all value can be measured monetarily, right? And so when you're describing the grandparents and the grandkids growing a garden together, it's like the economist or the traditional economist or the uh, conventional economist maybe would say, oh, well, that's going to save this family X number of dollars. And you and I might look at it and be like, oh, pleasure, memories, bonding, family time. And those are values or those are, how do you say, in, intangibly, those are, it's not that they're values like that, that loaded word. They are valuable to us as human beings. Those connections, those memories, those experiences are inherently valuable, but nobody can put a price tag on it. Yeah, and it's almost like the the food grown in the garden would just be like a side effect. <laughs> yeah, but 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 again, then you get into the value of the nutrition of homegrown yeah. food and the not having to spend so much time at the grocery or at the big box stores, right? All these smaller tendrils of value. And you know, it's it's interesting. I was having a conversation with a a woman recently who was raised in um, Russia and I was talking to her about meal planning and, you know, it's, it's tough for big families. And she says, oh no, that's, that's just normal for us. Like we, we all know how to use every scrap and we all know how to cook from scratch. And because, you know, that's, that they were raised in a different uh, food system. They're really, it's a different food system. It's like, we, we have this concept and this idea that you know, throw it away. And that's because we don't value these things. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of, you know, you, you buy one of those rotisserie chickens and throw away the carcass rather than making soup out of the, the, the bones. I mean, that's incredibly nutritious. If you use just that little part that most people would throw away, um, in, in economic hardship, you learn how not to do that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and uh, I'm sure you're aware, but I mean, it's, it's almost kind of a, a joke or a meme, but 
um, a lot of our delicacies today have come out of uh, near starvation where people have learned, you know, oh, throwing chicory in with your coffee is actually a good thing, uh, you know, but it came out of desperation. Um, also, I, I think crayfish <laughs> yeah. also incorporated into diets the same way. Um, but yeah. My, um, my grandmother actually had a funny story about that. She grew up in the, in Oklahoma during the depression. And she said that her family in part survived off uh, frog's legs from the little creeks. <laughs> so that was like one of the only foods they had. And so then as an adult and in the socioeconomic groups she found herself in, she would go to restaurants and go to meetings and they would be serving frog legs as this exquisite delicacy. And she was, you know, she's, she says how shocked she was to find that at first. But yeah, I mean, that, that just goes to. Oh, <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah, right. <Yes. laughs> how, how there's things that we value in different ways. And some of those things we, we cannot put a price tag on. Yeah. But also the interaction. And so if we're looking at like a, a much larger food system than a household, maybe a community or a larger society, it, it doesn't take much observation to see how vital and how essential women are to those roles. You know, who's, who are the decision makers about the food that comes into the house? It is primarily women. And that's why there's big brands target women for the advertising, right? At, at a bare minimum, managing inventory levels is yeah. like a constant battle. <laughs> and managing the meals, managing the nutrition, I would say, which I think our society has veered largely away from thinking about our daily meals in terms of what, what we might be combating personally, right? Like you mentioned, Indian cultures and so many of them source the food for the day based on what are the symptoms that the different people are having and like how can these different herbs alleviate some of these symptoms mm -hmm. and just to clarify by Indian I mean actually from India yeah 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 yeah, yeah. that was clear to me but thanks for making yeah. that explicit yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and our, how, how vulnerable our current system is. We've boxed it in so much, right? Yeah. And then back to the baby formula thing, like how, you know, moms that rely on baby formula, you know, what are they to do if it takes, you know, eight weeks to, to get the plant back to up and running? Um, yeah, we talked about that a, a few weeks ago and it's still ongoing. It is. Um, it, it just makes me sad and it, it doesn't really do any good to shame women who had to rely on formula for whatever reason. Right. Um, they, they still have a, a baby that is struggling to get nutrition. Absolutely. And you know, Rachel, I also want to tread carefully here because yeah. I, I, I think that women in general in our society are completely overworked. I think we have way too many expectations on us, <laughs> way too many, just far too many. So when I talk about our responsibilities and how we can account for vulnerabilities in the food systems, and like one of those ways is growing a garden, it's not to put more expectation on 
us and on. But yeah, I mean, I want to be clear. It's like when we talk about the formula shortage and we talk about the vulnerabilities and how can we account for maintaining food security within the context of these vulnerabilities, it's not like, and now we have to do 10 times more in our lives. Like, no, I'm not advocating that. I'm saying there, there is a balance somewhere I, yeah. and it's, it's different for everyone. And part of this is in the ways that we can support each other. Right. And if I know how to grow tomatoes and you know how to grow cantaloupes, can I grow tomatoes for you? And you'll grow cantaloupes for me without forcing you to also grow tomatoes. Or maybe I know how to grow tomatoes and cantaloupes and you make the best tomato sauce. Right. And so without adding, like we can exchange so that we alleviate some of these burdens of each other while still uh, bridging the gaps of some of these vulnerabilities. Yeah, that's brilliant. And that takes uh, reaching out to your neighbors and knowing who they are. It's true. Also something that we don't do very much in our culture. Right. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's why I think it's, it's, you know, we've talked about shifting some of our priorities in the past. Yeah. And when you think about modern priorities around food or around entertainment, you know, just observationally, like, look, I'm, I'm one life. I'm a few collected anecdotes of life experiences. And, you know, I see that amusement parks are thriving up until COVID movie theaters were thriving, but small farms were failing and our forests were dying. And people prioritize grassy lawns over food-based lawns or food-based yards, whatever. Uh, And so a part of it too is questioning our priorities enough to get people questioning them themselves, right? So is is it really a priority to have grassy, grassy lawns with nothing in them? edible or maybe you know just let it go and let the dandelions grow and plant a couple fruit trees and a couple edibles in there some and people have to take over the HOA in order for that to be accomplished this but is true know, this is true and so then it might look like budgeting your food a little bit differently right a little bit less eating out a little bit more local farms so each situation each circumstance is different but this idea of of allowing the exploring shifting priorities in order to create a a higher level base of food security, right? We're just stepping up. Let's, Let's just step up a couple steps at a time. And I think that, you know, having, having lived this way for a long time now, it can have a couple of awkward moments, but it's, it's like one of those things that this, these, all of these little small decisions, like just think about how, prevalent it is you go to a birthday party and the expectation is that everybody's going to have birthday cake and it's going to be a sheet cake from whatever place no nutritional value etc cetera, etc cetera. and just shifting a little bit like taking a step up maybe it's going to be fruit instead of cake right just being willing to take small shifts and yes at times it can be a little bit uncomfortable but it's it is the accumulation of all of these small choices that create the fabric of our society, right? And so if we are able to make a slightly different choice in several different occasions, just a little bit, we can have a completely different fabric. 
Yeah, if everyone just moves this much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whether it's a little less eating out, a little bit more preparation at home, or more networking, or um, growing a couple things in your yard, if you don't, if you're not boxed in by an HOA, or just pushing the boundaries of the HOA sometimes, or whatever that looks like in each individual circumstance, but a gradual shift, mm -hmm. step up towards a more secure entire food system. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Okay. I, I honestly don't know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask your opinion. How do you feel about um, those uh, freeze-dried food storage things for preppers? You know, like those big boxes of freeze-dried food where you just add water and boil it and it's a meal. What do you think about that? Because a lot of people, they, they will buy, you know, massive amounts of that in yeah. a little can um, just for doomsday. Like, what do you think about that? Um, definitely mixed, maybe conflicting views on it. I think it's better than starving. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that being said, I mean, I don't, I'm not personally acquainted with any one in particular. I can't say like, oh, the nutritional value this or that. I mean, I think it's also how to put it because I'm going to say things that contradict myself and I'm very aware of this. Okay. Um, on the one hand, I think it's important to be prepared for certain scenarios, whether that's electrical outages, hurricanes, whatever that might be, and be prepared in ways that work for you. And on the other hand, I don't want to live there. I don't want to live in like, everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket and I've got to prep for that doomsday. Like, I don't want to live there because it takes away the joy today. Right. And yes, can, can some people find a balance in that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think some people are so <clears throat> they, they're, they're so acutely aware of how unsustainable yep. our whole system is that it makes them actually feel better and more relaxed mentally to know that they've got something set aside. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, doomsday. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah, other, other people can, you know, go way off the rails. And totally. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I get there's a balance, but there's, there's a way to have that stuff like in your home somewhere and just knowing that it's there helps you relax. Yes. And that's, that's where I think that like, because we're all different psychologies, right? <laughs> that's where it's so <laughs> great to have diversity. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way, like I personally, I would always, and I would always advocate dried like beans and rice and whole grains over the freeze dried stuff and honey and coconut oil and peanut butter, like those things that are really high fat that are super, super, well, honey's not high fat, but coconut oil, peanut butter are, Shelf and soup. honey will stay good forever. And honey is, is very good for you. It's very good internally. It's very good topically. It's medicinal. So haven't they found honey in like yes. Egyptian yes. tombs that are, yeah. still, that are still edible? Exactly. Exactly. It, it will last for thousands of years. You can use it as an anti, 
septic on wounds, you know, small wounds. It's not going to be because, you know, if you, if you go back and listen to the honey episode, he talks about it because it's, it's so low water content. It is, um, you know, I, I forget the entire chemical or biological process, but microbes just can't live in it. Yeah. Yep. Now, if you add water to honey, it's got a different story, but it is, it is good in, in that use as a whole thing. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that there are better alternatives for most cases than the freeze-dried stuff. Very interesting. And, and I think if we come together and more of us learn how to grow and how to network, I'm quite optimistic in saying this, and I realize this, and some days I won't say this, but I think that we're all better off if more of us learn how to grow or produce food, chickens, vegetables, fruit trees, nut trees, dairy, any of it, we're all better off if more of us learn how to do that than if more of us get these freeze-dried things. That's a very good point. As per usual, you have a very enlightened perspective. So now it's about encouraging everybody to get their hands dirty and plant some food. Yeah. You know, and also it's not mutually exclusive. Exactly. This is so true. And some people are going to gravitate towards that. And some people are going to gravitate towards beans and rice. And that is why we want people to be free to make their own decisions. And community. And community. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Um. Well, another thing that I wanted to talk about, if you're game, is, man, I have had a rough weekend because I came down with the flu, and it's been rough. I've been kind of down for the count for, it was like three and a half days, and I'm only just feeling on the mend again, but it just made me think of all kinds of things, like when when moms get sick. <laughs> How much does the house fall apart when mom gets sick? And, you know, um, my husband has stepped up to the plate remarkably well. He's, he's done a very good job keeping things together. Um, but, <laughs> but it just made me think of all kinds of issues, you know. Um, who, who takes on all of the responsibilities when mom is down for the count? And who takes care of mom? Yeah. Yeah, I get it, Rachel. I mean, I think this is, this is a struggle I've had so many times and I, I don't know a single mom who hasn't had this struggle. And quite frankly, I mean, it's not limited to moms, right? It's like, <laughs> we can just, just be ourselves and still want that care and nurture. And, and it really goes back to what you were talking about earlier with segmented networks where it's this mark of shame to be living with an older generation, but actually it's a beautiful, it's beautiful. And it's, mutually supportive and there's values in there that are immeasurable Mm -hmm. and often invisible, right? Like you're just saying, like, who takes care of mom? You know, (laughs) there's this this funny video, um, that I, I showed my, it's about a man cold. It's, it's, um, by, you know, some comedians in, in the UK (laughs) and it's making fun of, like men when they get a cold, how oh. it them harder. 
Um, maybe we could post a link, but like <laughs> I was joking with my husband. I think I have a man cold. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like the the um, the joke goes, you know, the the nine nine nine, which is like the UK's nine one one people. They come in and they <laughs> they're like triaging this man with a cold and. <laughs> like his his wife they hand him a bell and say you're to take this bell and give it to him and whenever he rings it you're to come over and pet his forehead and say poor little bunny (laughs) so I told my husband to do that for me and he's like ew no and catch your germs (laughs) oh goodness gracious Uh, so but I'm mostly better yeah and, you know, Rachel, you're speaking to something really vital to so many people because there's acute illness, right? Mm. Sick for three oh. days, one week, maybe two weeks. And then there's chronic illness. And I, I mean, I hardly know how to speak to this. And the thing that I keep coming back to is that, yeah, I mean, your your comments about networks and multi-generational living and even, even just know your neighbors, right? Like know your neighbors because, because there are so many expectations on us. So many on the, the nurturing and the nourishing of our households. And there's so many wonderful things that have been written about it, but we, we feel it every single day. We know this and just knowing that other people can step in and take care of our loved ones, or if we have little ones, take care of our little ones for those couple of days, rather than everybody being so busy in their own segregated lives that we don't have those support networks. I, it's, it's something I've profoundly felt missing for a long time. And I made the choice to live close to family. So in some ways, I feel like I even had a little bit more of that than some of my peers when my children were little and it's still, we're still missing a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, true. So what do you do when you get the flu? You have a go-to flu remedy? Uh, Yeah, so much sleep. Like I found that, you know, I get, I get chronic migraines and I have my whole life. And the only thing that actually helps the migraines is sleep. And just a lot of sleep. And it's a struggle because there's all these responsibilities that aren't getting done when I'm out for a couple of days. And if it's a, an acute illness like the flu or something, oh man, Rachel, it's, it's tough. It's just tough because the responsibilities don't stop. You yeah. still have to, like, especially the little ones. Now my children are older and they can take on so much more of the responsibilities. Mm-hmm. But when they're younger, I mean, it's either get up and do the work and then collapse and get up and do the work. And by, by the work, you know, it means feeding the children and changing the diapers and like just the basics, right? I'm not like clean the house when you're sick, but you got to change the diaper. Yeah. And when you don't have support, when you don't have the help for that, you're the only one, it still has to happen. Yeah. And it's, Let's see. I mean, I, I don't think I've always done one thing and 
done it that way, but you know, you just piece it together. You struggle through when you're acutely ill, when you have little children and as they get older, of course they should, they can and should take on more of the responsibilities that then when we're sick, we can't take on. And that's part of the beauty of intergenerational living, right? Yeah. Yeah. But no, in terms of, in terms of food, I mean, absolutely. I'm a huge advocate of like, anytime you get a cold, the flu, anything like that, large amounts of vitamin C. Oh yeah. Vitamin D, you know, you have to maintain higher levels. Like you can't just vitamin C it's almost immediate it's in your system. Vitamin D, it takes a long time to build up into your system. So higher levels of vitamin D for maintenance. You know what else? Um, it makes sense that this happened right at this time of transition for me because my previous yeah. job was very much outside. I was oh. outside all day. Um, and then I, I left that job and I came inside and I started, it's bug season here in Florida. It's very hot and the bugs have come back. Oh yeah. I was getting these bug bites um, that itch like crazy, like these things called noceums and they're vicious and you don't even know that you've been bit like a mosquito. You can feel that you're being bit and, and slap it away and you can see a mosquito, but these noceums, they're very mysterious. And I was, I was getting bit so bad by these things. I just stayed inside. <laughs> Wham, the flu, because I deprived myself of sunshine. Uh, can't win for losing. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, that's that's an issue here too. Now, now the vitamin D levels, once you have high vitamin D levels in your blood, they're going to be steady for several months. So just that huh. quick, quick being indoors a lot isn't going to necessarily affect vitamin D immediately. Okay. Um, but I hear you on the bugs. Like I just got another round of Lyme disease. Ugh. And that's, you know, that's very prevalent here on the East Coast. Oh. And it's tick-borne. But you know, it, it's so interesting to, to witness and then to kind of reflect what did people do 500 years ago about all the, all the disease that's based, that's insect-based or <laughs> tick-based, right? Because ticks are not insects. Well, but there was a higher mortality, so they died more. Yeah. And, but also, I mean, they also managed. Yeah. <laughs> so the, many you, managed. You serve, the, the, the species survived somehow. Yeah. 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 And when I think of the options, it's like none of the options are great. It's like stay inside all the time. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, don't play in the grass. Also, no, thank you. Uh, wear really awful, horrible chemicals. Also, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> So, you know, itch. <laughs> yeah, but but there's also this really serious risk, right? Yeah. And it's all it's very difficult to navigate. Full stop. It's difficult to navigate. Yep, it's all a balancing act. So you've got Lyme disease, and I've got the flu <laughs> <laughs> from different, possibly from different choices. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Oh no. Yeah. We can't win Liz. Well, on the other hand, we're always winning. We are. Tell me something good. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, there's so much good. Guess what? It's strawberry season here. Strawberry okay. season. It's like Christmas. Yes, it's like Christmas. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I mean, I know, I know what you're saying. There's a lot of risks in the world, but every day there's beauty also. And we can add to that beauty. We contribute to it. Yep. Yeah. You know, one of the first things, the first uh, uh, lessons, shall we say, when I was studying permaculture, which is always an ongoing, but the question is what gives you hope? Because immersed in this world of what we're doing to our ecosystems, what we're doing to our own bodies with our food system, it can feel really daunting. And so that question of what gives you hope and then that shared response, it's one that's so important to stay with. Because if we don't stay with it, you know, you were talking about the people, the, the, some preppers can just go off the rails because yeah, it just feels so overwhelming. Yeah. And that's doing, not good. Yeah. And you know, it was interesting just in my life over the past weekend, I made a comment out loud about the gas prices going way up. And one of my kids just reacted so strongly. It was, mom, why are you always so doom and gloom? And I was, I was honestly shocked because I didn't mean it to be doomy and gloomy. I meant it as like, let's be really intentional about where we're going and how much we're using. But I can see how it came across that way because it's also like then at some point, we get our panic buttons pushed. Yeah. And, and different people, it's different things that push those panic buttons. And our kids don't have any control over so much. Right. Right. Yeah. And when our panic buttons get pushed, it comes out in ways that we're not necessarily mindful about, yeah. conscientious of. And so it really caused me to pause, really strongly pause and reflect on that and go back to the, the things that give me hope. Well, this has been excellent, Liz. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover? Well, and we covered a lot, Rachel. We did. There's, there's one other comment I'll make, and it's just, it's just because it's been on my mind a lot recently. Okay. And that's this concept of common ground. Mm -hmm. We use this as an idiom in speech a lot to mean agreement. But when you really boil it down to what is common ground, it's literally the soil under our feet, right? And if we have an acknowledgement, awareness, recognition of our common ground, we might approach things slightly differently. As a whole, as individuals, we might have a different outlook. If, if we know, I mean, the idea of the commons you know, the, the commons where people would yeah. go and graze their cows in a big stretch of land. It was shared land in the community. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's, that's where it's rooted. And so people treated it in a certain way. Like you couldn't, you couldn't do kind of, you know, maybe slightly similar in concept to an HOA concept where you have this shared property or you have this shared goal but it's, it's really so much broader than that. It really is that and what you do to your land affects other people. Yeah. What we each do, it is, it is truly common ground. 
And it's something to, it's just something to sit with, right? Because if, if I'm aware that my trash truly, truly affects people halfway around the world, I might make a different choice. If I'm really, if I'm present to that awareness, that is the common ground. We don't have to agree on something, right? We just have to understand that this is shared. That's a good point. It's good food for thought. Food for thought. Food for thought. Well, we've certainly covered a lot of ground today. Yes, we have. Yeah. (laughs) You're such a good sport about it, always. Well, it's been fun. Yes, indeed. All right, Rachel, remember, eat for health, know your neighbor, and grow some food.